Heavenly Father, once again we come before you and we're thankful for each one assembled together in this room. Lord, we call upon you to work in our hearts and lives. Lord, we recognize, we understand that your word needs no improvement. You need no improvement, but we most certainly do. Lord, let each one of us surrender our hearts to your word, to the work of the Holy Spirit of God, that we would leave this place desiring and enabled to serve you more. We pray for those here that are not saved, that you would work in their hearts and bring them closer to the knowledge and understanding of what true Bible salvation is, and that even today, our greatest prayer would be that they would trust you as their personal Savior. Lord, we ask you to work in our lives that we may serve thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please remain still. Amen. If we could only have Christ as our only vision, things would be very different, would it not? Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And the Sundays of January, uh, um, I uh, really did not plan uh, this series of sermons, but uh, it's just been uh, falling in order that way and talking on spiritual warfare, on the battles of the Christian life. And, of course, we live in a world where there is much strife, but God's way of dealing with these things is very, very different than the world's way. And and I must say it is very, very different than most people who call themselves Christians or religionists or or of any uh, religious order. It is very, very different. Someone once said, the history of man is marked by wars. That's very true. And most wars are fought by men trying to help God out. Stop and think about it. And I'm glad when I read about the kingdom of God in the Bible... And his coming to rule and reign, and we often refer to the Prince of Peace ruling the world from the city of peace, which will be Jerusalem. Guess what? He's not going to need one soldier to fight one battle. He will do it all himself. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? And yet, there is a battle for the Christian to fight. There, there is warfare that we must be involved in every moment uh, of our existence. Some uh, years ago, and, and often I will, it, it comes back as new people get saved and, and they begin to understand that this battle against the flesh and against self never ends and it's continuing to say, as a Christian, I fail and I, and I keep trying and, and I don't seem to be doing that much better than sometimes I did before I was saved. Well, let me ask you a question. How hard was the devil fighting you before you got saved? Uh, maybe you're just encountering a little more opposition at this point than you ever did before. And that's why it's a little harder. But... The difference between the saved and the unsaved, it's not about you. 
It's about Jesus. It's where we go. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where do you go with your failures if you're unsaved? You try to sweep them under the carpet. Uh, You try to cover them up. You try to make them less obtrusive. Have you ever tried that? How many of you remember the teenage years? And you had all of those... uh, Uh, how shall we say them, blemishes appear in your face. Pimples, all right? Have you ever tried to cover one of those things up? Now, guys, it's much more difficult to do unless you believe in wearing makeup. And if you do, guys, see me after church. We'll try to help you pass that, all right? Uh, But if you get out your makeup kit and ladies and tried to cover that thing up, you might as well just hang a beacon right on it uh, because you're drawing attention to it by the things you're doing to cover it up. That's what happens when we sin, is it not? If we try to cover that up, if we try somehow to make it less obvious, what do we end up doing? Making a bigger mess and making it more obvious. If you want to fight the battles, go back to the first Sunday of the year. Get your praise in order. If you can worship and praise God where you are, he'll take care of the battles. But there's a daily, continual, moment-by-moment battle. There are many things the Bible tells us have to be done daily. Give us this day. Our daily bread. You have to fight the battle of your wants every day. How many of you have ever been consumed by getting something or wanting one thing? I remember someone years ago said, Pastor, you don't understand. All I want is to be happy. He said, you and about six billion other people on the face of the earth, yeah. I said, who doesn't want to be happy? If I met someone that said, Pastor, I want to be miserable. I'd say, you got problems. That's not what life is about. Jesus said, I've come to give you life. And that life more abundantly. How can you have something more abundantly? It's when you have something so big and so wonderful, you can't even contain it. That's what Jesus is talking about. Beyond your ability to comprehend and use, that's more abundantly. But that battle's got to be fought against our wants, against our will. If the devil wants to steal anything from you today, it's your worship. If he can steal your worship, he's got everything else. Why do you think the battle is for worldly music in the church? Why do you think the battle is for marketing strategies in the church? 
It's because if the devil can steal your worship, he has everything else. You've got to fight. Worship isn't something that only ought to happen on Sunday, my friend. If it only happens when you come to church, it's not Bible worship. We have to live it each and every day. That's why the battle has to be fought. The great battles of life. Two weeks ago. Though they're fought in a moment or moments of time, the battles are won and lost in the lifetime of preparation before the battle was even conceived in the mind of men. Maybe I'll read that one one more time, make sure I got it right. The great battles, though fought in a moment or moments of time, are won and lost in the life of preparation before the battle was even a concept in the mind of men. David won the battle with Goliath while he was being a little shepherd boy out in the field, obeying and worshiping God. Saul lost the battle with himself and the privilege of being king because when no one was looking at King Saul, he was a man of weak heart and character. Last week's sermon was having done all to stand. It is hard to impress upon the minds of young people in school that doing most of your homework is still incomplete. That cleaning most of your room is still undone. That obeying almost every law is still to come short of the glory of God. It's not having done most to stand. It's not having done everything I can to stand. It's having done all to stand. You ever wonder why your greatest efforts often result in failure? It's because you didn't do all. And by the way, the only way you can do all is through Jesus Christ, not through you. Taking the whole armor of God. And if you want to fight the battle, where do you do it? To, to keep the biblical picture, we would say on your knees, praying always with all prayer. That is the battle. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what I'd like for us to do is to look today at the essence of the battle. And there's a phrase in the middle of this passage that we're going to read, the pulling down of strongholds. And I will tell you that that is the uh, title of this message. And this is what must happen if we're going to serve Christ. But let me tell you, the pulling down of strongholds in the spiritual battle and the pulling down of strongholds in the physical battle have no bearing on each other whatsoever. I mean, how many? I mean, there's still. Every time I go into the subways, there's some new guy dressed in some new suit of armor fighting some medieval battle with a sword. 
You ever wonder about that? I mean, we have a fascination with castles and knights and the young ladies still talk about their knight in shining armor. Uh, Could I challenge you, young ladies, you really don't want a knight in shining armor. Should he show up, you will spend the rest of your life just trying to keep it shiny, all right? Uh, There are better things to do with your life than shiny armor, amen? But we have a fascination for that. I I think, uh, now I don't believe in reincarnation, but the closest thing to it is... uh, the American Old West, there have been more lives lived in the American world, in the American Old West, more stories written about more things that didn't happen than could possibly be lived in the history of mankind. And right next to it is the stories of the knights and the shining armors and all of the castles and the battles. And fantasy land is fun for a time, but it's not going to help you live. Let's start reading in first, Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to read down through uh, verse 7. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you, But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with you, that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience. When your obedience is fulfilled, do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, Let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. Now again, we're just taking one small passage out of a book. This is Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, The Corinthian church was a church that was full of trouble. But let us look to ourselves. The Corinthian church was a Gentile church. It was not like some of the other churches uh, earlier in the history that were built primarily from those of a Jewish faith. In fact, the church at Antioch, one of the greatest churches in the New Testament, was almost entirely Jewish for the first years of its history uh, until the gospel went to the the Gentiles and and we have that church uh, being led and and Paul was a Jew, Barnabas was a Jew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Somebody said, but Luke is a Gentile name, but 
These were people who had studied the scriptures all their life. And God would take them who had spent their whole life studying the Old Testament and use them to write the new. There's a connection, my friend. And as Paul is writing this Corinthian church, he has rebuked them over and again for different problems. And, and now he is trying to wrap up this second letter. And he begins the letter. And I, I wish we had time to go through the whole book of 2 Corinthians, but we would be here for a long, long time. We won't do that this morning. But Paul told them, he said, I came to you once and I made you all sad. He said, I just, uh, if you come from the country, we would say ripped hide. Uh, that meant he let them know what was going on and he uh, uh, gave them strong condemnation. And there was no misunderstanding of what Paul was doing. And the Corinthians understood and were convicted by the Holy Spirit of God in their own hearts and minds of their sin and their disobedience to the word of God. And Paul is saying, listen, I'm begging you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And he's going to go on to say, you know, when I'm with you, you think that he uses the word base. He says, I'm not lording over you like the Roman soldiers and the governors and the political figures of his day. He said, I'm not trying to be some great one. What I'm trying to do is encourage you to serve Christ simply and humbly on a day-by-day -day basis. He said, it's not about me. I'm not trying to exalt myself. There have been some conversations I've had over the years, and they say, Pastor, you just think you're perfect. No, far from it. What I'm trying to do is encourage you to serve Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was saying here. I've had others say, Pastor, you just want to make my life miserable. Well, if you're living in sin, yes, I do. That's part of my job. I don't want anyone to end up in hell comfortable. I want it to be as miserable a trip as we can. I hope you'll stop and turn around on the pathway and find the peace and the joy in Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what Paul is bringing forth here in these first few verses. He said, I'm not trying to hurt you, but I want you to understand that worldly people look at godly things in a worldly perspective. That's what he means when he says at the end of verse 2, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Don't try to understand God's word without the help of the Holy Spirit of God. Because these are not man's words. These are God's words. And only the author can make the message plain. 
And he says, we walk after the flesh, meaning we walk in the flesh. I'm sorry, it says, therefore, though we walk in the flesh, he says, we're living a physical human life. We do not war after the flesh. He said, what goes on in our life is not the same thing that goes on in the life of the unsaved person. My life is not about the possessions and the things of this world. The life of any true Christian should not be about what is in this world. You say, but pastor, what do you mean? I quit my job and just come to church? No. Uh, We want you to work your job. We want you to tithe, amen? So we can pay the bills. So we can send missionaries all over the world. So we can do the work that God wants us to do. But it's not about fleshly things. It's about spiritual things. Look at verse 4. The authority for the battle is in Christ. It's not about personalities. It's not about human people. It's about Christ. And Paul is simply saying, listen, I've rebuked you enough in the past. When I come again, I don't want to waste my time rebuking you. I'd like to fellowship with you. But you cannot judge things. You cannot interpret God with a carnal or worldly understanding. We live in the flesh, but what we do is not about the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, when the word carnal there is used, it's used about fleshly, physical Human things are weapons, are not weapons that you can hold in your hand. I have met even Baptist preachers over the years who said, I'm going to be ready when it happens. I always get nervous when I hear that. And I remember one preacher, he wanted me to uh, find him a chassis on which to put his tank. He had bought a riot tank from the Detroit Police Department, left over from the 60s. And he said, I want you to make this thing run for me. He said, you're a really good mechanic. You can help me. And and, uh, I'm going, you know, there is enough stupid in this world without you earning your doctor's degree. Amen. Uh, What in the world do you think you're going to do? Our warfare is not carnal. Anyone who says, I'm going to serve God by holding a sword or a gun or uh, someone said, they're going to take all of our weapons away, so I'll make my body a weapon. Use it against yourself, amen. Leave the rest of us alone. That is just such insanity. The only one that's going to get hurt in this process is you. Our weapons are not carnal. The Catholic Church has fought wars 
for the process of the kingdom of God. The Protestant church has fought wars. The Buddhist, the Hindus, Islam. Almost every religion in this world has fought wars because they're trying to help God out. Let me tell you something. You cannot obey the Bible and fight a war to prove, uh, to gain God territory. He doesn't want that kind of help. He doesn't need that kind of help and he's not looking for it. In fact, you have to disobey him to do it. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty. One of the great generals of the world, Napoleon. I've used this quote before. It's kind of interesting. He said, there have been many great generals in the world of which I am one. Napoleon had no uh, lack of, uh, of um, self-esteem, let me tell you. Uh, he was a great believer in himself. He said, but there's been no greater man than Jesus Christ. He said, I've led armies on the battlefield. He said, but Jesus could call the greatest army in the, earth, in the world, not based upon fear, not based upon conquest, but based upon love. Napoleon was a lot of things, but ignorant he wasn't. See, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. It's not something you can hold in your hand. If I hear one more story of someone, take the sword of the Spirit and fight the enemies of God. Oh, let me tell you something. That's not biblical. God didn't call you to fight. Get back to Ephesians 6. He called you to pray. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes you. Prayer gets you out of the way so God can do what he wants to do. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, this idea of a stronghold. In Paul's day, it's interesting, the history of warfare did not change very much from Genesis chapter 6 until after the turn of 1900. You controlled land by building a controlling fortress. That's how you controlled the property. You go through all over Europe, there's still the remnants and the ruins, and every once in a while somebody will rebuild one of those ancient castles. It was a stronghold. At the center of every castle was a place called the keep. It was usually a tower in which everyone could run into, well, not everyone, the fortunate ones, the walls were extremely thick. 
and they would go up to the top of the keep and they would throw things down upon those who would try to get entry to the fortified position. How many of you remember, well, nobody remembers, how many of you have read about the War of 1812? The British force had just burned Washington, D.C. The largest city in the colonies, in colonial, in the, Amer- the United States of America, at that time was the city of Baltimore, my hometown. I've been to Fort McHenry. The ships anchored far enough away that the guns of the fort could not reach the ships. And they were going to pound the fort into submission and destroy and sack the city of Baltimore, the largest city in the United States at that point. How many of you know what happened? The sun came up the next morning and the commander of the fort fired the morning cannon and raised the flag. And the British ships turned around and sailed away. You know why? Because a ship can't fight against a fort. It was a stronghold. The stronghold had to be taken before the city could be laid waste. Now, again, we're not talking in the physical realm. We're talking in the spiritual realm. What would a stronghold in the spiritual realm be? Well, let me tell you. It's a controlling position. We all have things in our lives. What is controlling you in the spiritual realm? There are people that will not get saved and will not surrender to Jesus Christ, will not follow Him through the waters of baptism because their family will oppose them. That's a stronghold. There are people who will not surrender to Christ because they've put themselves under the addiction of drugs or pornography. Or immorality, or cigarettes, or some other worldly passion. Let me tell you, it's a stronghold. If there is something in your life that is controlling you, I've met people and they say, We've already talked about, Pastor, all I want to be is happy. Well, wait a minute. If that's what's controlling you, that's a stronghold. I remember one young lady came up to me years ago, several years ago and said, Pastor, I, I want to surrender and I want to be married to the person that God wants me to, but, but are they going to be ugly? I said, let me me tell you from personal experience, God has a lot better taste than you do. He'll pick someone that even if the rest of the world thinks they're ugly, you will love. Have you ever wondered why certain people get together? 
I mean, people have always wondered that about my wife and I. What in the world did she see in him? I've had preachers ask me that question. And I'll just say, God is good, amen. (laughs) And if it weren't for God's goodness, none of us would have a thing. But when we go out and seek to have that goodness on our own terms, it becomes a stronghold that gives ground to the devil to control us and keep us from serving Christ. You see, how many people live lives that are controlled? You say, but you talk about a life that's controlled by religion. In fact, if we don't set up to your standards and do what you say, you're going to kick us out of the church. And No, it doesn't happen that way. The Bible pastor has no such authority. The authority is in the church. The authority is in the Word of God. And we have to work together to be obedient to the Scriptures. Now, the pastor has duties and has leadership roles and and all of those things. But let me tell you something. It's not about individuals. It's about God. Now, if we're going to pull down those strongholds, if we're going to destroy the areas of control that belong to the enemy, how is that going to happen? Well, it's outlined in the passage here. If we come down to verse 5, it says, casting down what? Read that word out loud. Casting down imaginations. Can I ask you a question? Just something to think about. How many of you know someone that is locked in a room today that is in a prison not made with bars but they're held captive by their imagination? If we could deal in the realm of imagination we could empty every mental hospital in this world. We could put the disciples of Freud out of business. But I want to challenge you, only God can deal in the realm of imagination. And by the way, how many of you have ever imagined something only to be disappointed when you had the reality in front of you? Come on, raise your hands. That's everybody here. Because reality cannot measure up to imagination. It's not possible. You can do things with your mind that Hollywood special effects and computer generated things have yet to even breach the threshold of. What goes on? in that little two and a half or so pounds of gray matter that sits behind your eyes and between your ears. That's where the battle is fought. It says, casting down imaginations. 
Do you know how many people have missed the joys of a Bible marriage because they're living in the realm of imagination? Do you know how many people have cut themselves off from the fellowship and the kindness and the support of other human beings because of what they imagine in their minds? The Bible says that we have to cast down imaginations. Let me tell you, no one has committed a murder without imagining it first. No one has committed adultery. No one has told a lie. Have you ever told a lie without thinking about it first? Then you of all people are most dumb. But how many after all your careful thought and process told the lie and then got caught? Every one of you. Because what you do up here cannot control what goes on out here. How many of you have ever had a conversation with somebody when they weren't there? I've even had people come, Pastor, I know what you're going to say. You do? You didn't talk to me. Well, yeah, I did. I talked to you in my imagination. They won't say that. But they've had the conversation in their imagination. And what happens up here oftentimes has no bearing in the real world. That's why you got to cast it down up here. You want to break the strongholds of the devil. Stop living in fantasy land, my friend. Stop living in the world of your imagination. Stop trying to figure out what everybody else is going to do to help you and what they should do to help you. Stop trying to imagining what life would be if you actually got that million dollars and that filthy, rotten, wicked lottery ticket you bought when no one was looking. Let me tell you, if we're going to See the weapons of the warfare of God mighty through God to the pulling down to the destruction of these strongholds, of these controlling positions in our life. We've got to cast down the imagery in our mind. How many movies has Hollywood made about love? What they call love. How many Hollywood actors have had happy marriages? Uh, maybe that ought to be a pointer or a, a, a directional to show us that it's just simple imagery. It has nothing to do with reality. By the way, most of those pictures of beautiful people that everybody likes to look at. Can I tell you the key to being a beautiful person? Photoshop. 
Ladies, you want to have perfect skin? Photoshop. Guys, you want to be rippled with all them big bulky muscles and just look perfect? Let me tell you the only way you're going to get there. Photoshop. It's imagery. And until we cast that down. I remember hearing a news article the other day on on, uh, the, the fact that we put all of this imagery before our young ladies and they think they need to look like Barbie dolls. Not my daughters, you freak. Because I don't put that stuff in front of them. Because I want their imagination to be pure and clean. I don't let them get the glamour magazines in the supermarket. I don't want them watching the fashion shows on the internet or on television. My children don't watch Miss America, Miss Universe, and Miss Teen USA, and all those other excuses to destroy the character of our young ladies. By the way, we don't spend a lot of time watching sports things either, because I don't want the young men, my young men, being perverted by thinking that Michael Jordan is something you ought to aspire to. You want me to tell you where all the great football players are that I watched when I was a kid? You know where they all are? Cemetery. Because that's what steroids do to you. Do I want my kids trying to attain unto that? It's casting down imaginations. I'll tell you what, I could get the all-star player list from 1955 and you might not recognize one or two names on the whole thing. I could go to 19... Who, who remembers who won the Cy Young Award in 1977? Does anybody know that? I don't know and I don't care. You know why? Because I don't want my imagination stretched in that direction. It's casting down imaginations. Now, the next one is interesting. There's an and there. This this needs to be cast down the same way. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Now, let, let me tell you something. There's an awful lot of things that are high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God under the pretense of humility. How many of you have ever heard this? Well, you know, the Bible's a good book. It's God's Word, but it's not writing about everything. How many of you have heard that? Let me tell you, that's a high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And it needs to be cast down. You you don't believe. I mean... We have evidence that the world is 4.5 billion years old and you're going to sit there and tell me that the world is less than 10,000. Well, actually, it's just a little over six according to the Bible chronology. And if I had a choice between believing in you and believing in the Bible, guess where I'm going? No offense to you, Mr. Scientist. But if you ever want to study 
in craziness. Read the radiological dating methods. It's absolutely astounding. We date the rocks by the fossils and we date the fossils by the rocks. And what does that mean? If you believe that, your head's full of rocks. Amen. That's what it believes. That's what it means. How can you look at the fossils and say they are so many years old, therefore the rocks have to be so many years old? But when we look at the fossils, we say, well, wait a minute, the rocks are so many years old, so therefore the fossils have to be so many years old. Says who? Well, I've got this neat little chart here that was developed, and it tells me how old everything is supposed to be. The interesting thing is the oldest bone fragment of a human being found is part of an elbow. Do you know that that is one of the most definitive joints in anatomy, the difference between man and ape, the difference, what makes a human truly human in, its physio- in, in the shaping of the elbow is one of the things that they can tell. The oldest bone fragment we have is that very part of an elbow, just coincidentally. The only problem was it was dated it like 3 billion years old. Or, what am I saying, 300 million. uh, it It was dated back in the time of the dinosaurs. So you know what they do? They change the data. That's a high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. You know what? People used to believe that dinosaurs, these big, huge, horrible creatures, when they begin uncovering their bones in the uh, 1700s and into the 1900s and uh, early 90s, they said, how in the world could this? This disproves the Bible. Oh, Really? It doesn't disprove anything. Just because the Bible is silent on an issue does not mean. And by the way, the Bible's not silent. How many people know what behemoth, book of Job, uh, proper term, apatosaurus, the largest of all dinosaurs is described in the scriptures. People say, that's an elephant. Well, you find me an elephant that has a tail like a cedar. Uh, Apatosaurus did. Let Let me just explain that there's a lot of high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. How many are old enough to remember Dr. Spock? Not the guy on Star Trek. Um, he was a human behaviorist in the 60s and said that you need to speak to your children. They understand. I'm sure glad my dad didn't listen to Dr. Spock. Oh, he spoke to us. He did a few other things too. My dad believed in raising his kids, sometimes right up off the floor, amen? But I'll tell you what, he did teach me the difference between right and wrong. 
We've got to cast these things down that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. We've had scholars attacking this book ever since it was in existence. What do we do when they bring all these criticisms against the Bible? Well, number one, we investigate them, but number two, we're operating from the understanding that this is God's Word. And it's amazing how foolish their criticisms become when you start from a proper basis. How many of you heard that there's 125,000 errors in your New Testament? That's one of the figures they throw out. And they quote a man named Shrivener on that. Well, you know what I did? I got Shrivener's book. And I read it. You know what he was talking about? He was talking about printer's errors. Not textual errors. He was talking about sloppiness in the printing of the Bible and carelessness on the part of typesetters and publishers. By the way, he was selling what he claimed to be the most perfectly printed Bible in all of history. Um, let Let me tell you something. People criticize and they argue and they try to make God look little. Cast it down, my friend. What God said in his word still works. Now, the next one is the hardest. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. If you want the strongholds removed in your life, this is how you do it. Number one, you have to deal with imagination. Number two, you have to stop listening to those that give you information that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. And number three, you've got to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You say, well, what does that mean? How many of you have ever been really afraid of something. And found out it wasn't there. I've told the story we were in the building only a little while and I was uh, down in the basement and uh, just had one or two, one light on in the hallway and I had ducked into the uh, bathroom to check on something in there and I heard a click. All the lights went out. And the thing is, you got to walk out into the lobby and that lobby, there's no light in the basement lobby. I mean, it is dark. You know what? I was scared. Was there anything to be scared of? Absolutely Not. When this was a synagogue, the the Jewish people put everything on timers to keep the Sabbath. And I hadn't found one of those timers, and it had clicked all the lights off. That's letting your thoughts run away with you. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's not brainwashing. 
It's allowing the word of God to control your thoughts. And I remember standing there and feeling the fear. Somebody's in the lobby. Somebody turned those lights off. And then all of a sudden I said, no, wait a minute. I'm a Christian. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. If he doesn't protect me, do you think I'm going to protect me? This is really stupid. And I walked out and turned on the lights. And that's when I found the timer. They had hidden it in the closet. Uh, Let me tell you something. It's just believing the word of God. How many of you have ever doubted your salvation? Why? Because you're thinking against the word of God. If you're truly saved. If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ to give you salvation, then you ought to doubt it because you don't have it according to the scriptures. But once you've come to Jesus and been obedient to the word of God, you allow your thoughts to be obedient to Christ and he will give you the confidence. How many of you have ever been afraid trying to give a gospel tract to another person? If you're a human being, you have. Why? Because your thoughts aren't obedient to Christ. When they're obedient to Christ, you're not afraid anymore. You see, this is how you pull down the strongholds. This is how you win the battle. Now look at verse 6. We're going to be done on time by God's grace. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now boy, you read that and you say, now wait a minute, what in the world? I'm supposed to be ready to revenge. And when we think about the word revenge, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Well, let's just put this thing And, and of course, we need to look up the definition of the word revenge. And the primary definition is exactly that. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. It also has the idea of maintaining a cause. When people have injured the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about here. That's the context. I've had people criticize me for being obedient to Christ on hundreds and countless occasions. It says, having in readiness to revenge all disobedience. Now get that last phrase, when your obedience is fulfilled. You... Be obedient to Christ. And you will have the answer to reprove them which challenge your obedience to Christ. Does that make sense? I had people tell me, you're crazy for going to New York. Really? Who would say that now? Same people who told me I was crazy say, God did a wonderful work in New York City. Yeah, he did. You see, I have a readiness to revenge disobedience. And the answer is not in fighting that person. 
The answer's been being obedient to Christ. I've had people tell me, you're crazy for having all them kids. Well, I'm getting ready for the answer. It's coming out. My father-in-law says, you're ready when your grandkids turn out. Well, we have that opportunity in not so distant future, I think. Peter has his way. We'll just see if Ashley agrees with him. Amen. But the simple truth of the matter is, that's what this is talking about. I wouldn't trade my life for anybody's life. The obedience to Christ has been the greatest thing I've ever known. I didn't plan it. He did. You see... People look on the outward things. How many lawyers are you going to have? How many doctors are you going to have? How many politicians are you going to have? Hopefully none. I want my kids to be preachers. I want them to be missionaries. I want them to be servants of God. That's the greatest desire I have in my heart. What if he takes them away from you and puts them on the foreign field? Well, maybe I'll finally take that trip to the mission field. But we'll see. It's far better to be obedient to Christ and endure a little pain in this life and be together in the next than to have everything I want in this life and be separated in the next. Amen? You see, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. My question is, what stronghold do you have controlling your life? The world seeks for satisfaction, do they not? Do they ever get it? Rockefeller or... I think it was the one that said just another dollar when they asked him how much money was enough. There is no end to the attempts to satisfy this flesh. But when I pulled down those strongholds, when I cast down those imaginations and the high things that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. When I bring into captivity my thoughts to the obedience of Christ, I have that life that's more abundant and I can enjoy it now and in eternity. That's what church is all about, my friend. That's what Christian warfare is about. It's about being obedient to Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We ask that you would take our eyes off the physical things that we can see, off of the poor attempts to be satisfied with the filth and the trinkets of this world. And Lord, that we would surrender our lives to the obedience of your word. Lord, so much more could have been said. Maybe many things I did say should have been left out. I just put this all in your hands right now. And Lord, just ask 
that you would use this feeble time of trying to preach and teach your word to challenge us to get involved in the real battle. Not to be distracted by the ancillary things, but to cast down the imaginations and the high things and to make our thoughts captive to your name. We ask that you would do this work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Have Brother Franz come and lead us.